If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The statistics, that they're just massive. You can't really get your head around them. Um, 7,000 big ships were involved. 12,000 planes were involved. And, and on D-Day itself, 156,000 men were due to be landed on those beaches. So, you know, it was... It was nothing had ever been attempted, you know, like this before um, in the history of warfare. That was Giles Milton talking about D-Day. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Today's interview is with the author and historian Giles Milton, who has recently released a new book which offers the soldier's perspective on the Normandy landings of 1944. He spoke to our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorn, at the offices of his publisher, John Murray. So today on the podcast, I'm in London and I'm joined by Giles Milton, who is an author whose books include Fascinating Footnotes from History, Churchill's Ministry of Ungentlemanly Warfare and Nathaniel's Nutmeg. But I wonder whether you could tell us about your latest book, Giles, D-Day, A Soldier's Story. Yes, this is the story of the 6th of June 1944, uh, D-Day obviously, the greatest seaborne invasion in the history of warfare. Um, And I wanted to tell the story of the individuals who were there and I tell the story within a very tight framework from midnight to midnight on the 6th of June. Um, So I think most of us will have heard of D-Day but people might not know the ins and outs. Could you just tell us what exactly D-Day involved and why it was such a significant moment in the Second World War? 
Yeah, D-Day was an absolute, the sort of turning point um, of the Second World War, if you like. This was the moment when the Allies were going to try and break the Nazis, basically. Um, a huge invasion of British, uh, American, Canadian and other troops were going to sail across the Channel and try and storm Fortress Europe, the, uh, you know, the Atlantic Wall, Hitler's um, Hitler's. Uh, defensive positions on the coastline of France and basically break the Nazis. Um, it was really, it was an, a moment of absolute importance because if the Allies succeeded in getting ashore on D-Day, it was very likely that they would win the war. Even Field Marshal Rommel, you know, in charge of the uh, German armies in France, he said, if they succeed on D-Day, they will win the war. But if the Allies failed, who knows what would have happened? You know, when could the Allies have launched a second invasion? They would have lost all element of surprise of everything. So it really, the stakes could not have been higher on the 6th of June, 1944. Um, I think that's something your book does really well, is it shows the kind of, the immense scale of operations on D-Day. So it's not just um, Americans landing on Omaha Beach. What were some of the other um, elements at play? Well, yeah, the Allies had chosen five beaches along a great sweep of Normandy coastline. They decided this was the, the best place to invade. You know, the, there were long, golden, sandy beaches, quite easy to get infantrymen ashore. Um, they, they tried to pick places where the German defences were at their weakest, although, of course, the Atlantic Wall was a massively fortified defence all along the coastline. Concrete bunkers, strongholds, machine gun nests. You know, this was, it was going to be an incredible challenge for Allied soldiers to, to get ashore. And, you know, the statistics, they're just massive. You can't really get your head around them. Um, 7,000 big ships were involved, 12,000 planes were involved. And, and on D Day itself, 156,000 men were due to be landed on those beaches. So, you know, it was, it was, nothing had ever been attempted, you know, like this before um, in the history of warfare. Another thing that your book does really well is it, is it does tell the soldier's story, yes, as the title suggests, but it also tells um, so many other stories. Can you tell us about some of the other people that were also involved? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... The story of D-Day has obviously been told many times before, the likes of Anthony Beaver, Max Hastings, they've all done their books on D-Day. But they've they've very much told it from the perspective of a, a military historian, if you like. They, they've looked at it from the top down. So it's been very much seen through the eyes of the generals and the commanders. What I wanted to do was turn the entire story um, on its head and see it from the point of view of the terrified 17-year-old teenage conscript, you know, who was being sent into the German machine guns. So that's one part of the story is to tell it from the Allied point of view there. I also wanted to tell it from the German point of view because no one ever talks about the Germans, you know, but the beaches were defended by equally terrified 17-year-old German conscripts, you know, who didn't know what they were going to face when the Allies landed. So their stories are, are very, very powerful as well. But also I wanted to include the third element, which is always written out of the story, which is the French civilians. The Normandy coastline was full of villages, of seaside coastal resorts, all of which were full of, of men, women and children. And I wanted to tell their story as well. And I found in the archives in France, in Normandy, some really uh, harrowing, powerful stories of... Um, families who found themselves at the receiving end of one of the greatest bombardments ever, naval and aer uh, aerial, um, and 
it sort of enabled me to bring the voices of of those who are never heard on D-Day, the, the, the women, the children, etc., and the, and the civilian story, if you like. Looking at all these different experiences really gave... It was a, like a 360 view of the whole the whole event. Yes. More, what I found... Um, I mean, you know, I spent enormous amounts of time in the archives trying to find these eyewitness first-hand accounts... And what what really I found where the narrative became very, very dramatic was to have um, a group of Germans inside a specific strong point, you know, in this case on Omaha Beach, um, and then have the story of the American, young Americans trying to take that strong point, you know, incredible tension there and uh, incredible drama. And it really... um, Sort of may be able to tell the, the the dramatic moments of the landing in the first wave and the the terrors for both the Allies attacking and for the seventeen year old Germans defending, uh, who knew that they were likely as likely to get killed on that day as the Americans or the British. It's almost like a, a giant jigsaw puzzle, really, isn't it? How did you go about one finding all of these incredible eyewitness testimonies, and then two? piecing them all together into something that actually made narrative sense. It does sort of turn your brain to mush <laughs> when you're going through these archives. And, um, you know, I researched in uh, in America, in several different places in, in America, in Germany, in France, uh, and of course in England. And um, I ended up with, with thousands of really incredible uh, accounts. My aim, first and foremost, well, first of all, was to go back to the earliest possible accounts, because rather than interview men who are now in their 90s, who often their their memories are are not so good. They often, when they tell stories, accidentally conflate accounts, you know. Rather than interview them, I wanted to go back to the earliest accounts from the late 40s, early 50s, when um, they were interviewed at length and in great detail. And detail is everything for for a book like this. And um, some of the accounts, you know, they, they, they went through everything from what they ate for breakfast to what buttons they had on their uniform. You have real detail. And, and the, the, the sheer terror of coming into land in, the, in this atrocious stormy weather, being seasick, all the colour, the detail is there. And that's what counted for me when I was doing a narrative, after all, only of 24 hours of from midnight to midnight. You really need to know the, the sort of gritty details of it. The men who, and the women, who wrote down these testimonies, were they aware that they were part of a massive moment in history and that's why they wrote down their stories or did they do it for their families or was it um, official records? What, where did these testimonies spring from? I don't think they were aware that D-Day was so important at the time. In fact, it was only on the sort of 25th, 30th anniversaries that D-Day began to assume a great importance. But I think often it was families that asked them to write down their their stories. Um, Of course, the great historian uh, Cornelius Ryan, who wrote The Longest Day, um, and that was in the early 50s. Now, he he was a brilliant journalist, um, an interviewer, and he interviewed thousands of veterans for his his book, uh, both Allied and German. And I was very fortunate that the the family allowed me access to um, to the archive of which you know many of these um, interviews he never used because the longest days are actually a very very short book so there were huge numbers of accounts that had not been used from his archive and then um still in america in new orleans um uh, a, a huge number of uh oral testimonies have been have been collected there so that was in a way, my launch pad actually was in America. And from there, I came back to the Imperial War Museum. And by then, these were interviews in the 60s and 70s when um, specific 
historians were uh, searching out for veterans to tell their stories. But again, done, conducted in great um, detail and, and really thorough interviews. You, know. you clearly have an eye for a fantastic character. So who were some of your personal favourite um, characters that you, you got the testimonies of? Well, I suppose one one of the interesting characters, and I, because this is a very different book on D-Day, I wanted it to start in a very different way. So it opens with um, a young German girl, uh, 18-year-old German girl called Eva Eifler. And she'd been conscripted into the Luftwaffe. And she was working in the city of Caen in Normandy um, on the night of the 5th, 6th of June. So she was at work on the night of the um, of the invasion. And it was a terribly stormy night. It was pouring with rain. There was, you know, rain tipping from the gutters. It was blowing a gale. In the channel, it was very, very rough. Everyone knew in the German army there was no chance of an invasion on that particular night. So she went to work expecting a very, very quiet night. But of course, as the the, uh, clock approached midnight, um, she begins to hear in her headphones um, new reports are coming over from all over Normandy of, of strange things are taking place. And she begins to write down these coded messages she's receiving. And in fact, Eva Eifler, aged 18, is possibly one of the first people um, to realise that D-Day has begun. So to tell her story, that was a great discovery, um, this interview that had been done in Normandy about 20 or 30 years ago. Um, to find this interview with her was really a- enabled me to sort of set the tone of the book that, that this is going to be a different book about D-Day. Um, I think a lot of major military histories, um, women are very sidelined in them, um, inevitably. Why was it important for you to put those um, women's stories back into it? Because women did, they played a role on D-Day, you know. I mean, Eva Eifler was in the absolute centre of the communications hub for the German Luftwaffe, you know, so she had a really important role. Um, There are others on the British side. I've got um, women working in Southampton in communications as well. So although they're not in the front line of battle, they're nevertheless um, playing sort of key roles in the whole, in the structure, the organisation of D-Day. And of course, then nurses played a very important role. Um, uh, So I have a a very powerful account of a 16-year-old who ended up caring for actually German prisoners of war on D-Day itself. Um, and then, you know, things like the the wife of an SS general who'd come to Normandy, Normandy to be with him. Um, uh, there are, and then, as I said before, there are the, the French civilians, you know, who, who suffered enormously um, and who found themselves unwittingly and unwillingly in the front line of battle. And their stories are, are very, very harrowing indeed. Um, the book really, it reads like fiction. It's gripping, it's page turning, um, it's driven by characters. Um, I wonder whether you could speak a bit about what you think the role of narrative history like this is and why it's so important to have stories like this told told in such a dramatic fashion rather than in an academic one. Well, I think um, for so long, you know, the story of the war has, like I said earlier, has been told through the officers and the gentlemen, you know, the, 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 the sort of gentlemanly class who wrote their stories. Um, so, so much of D-Day when it was written about after the war um, was written by those in charge. And I realised from the outset that many of the young soldiers on the ground were very, very unhappy about how their story had not even uh, um, had really been airbrushed from history, so they felt that they never had never had a voice. And to give one one sort of very striking example, which I write about at some length in the book, is the story of Lord Lovett. 
Um, it's a story that if you've read about D-Day, you'll probably know Lord Lovett's story. Um, this was the 15th Lord Lovett, Simon Fraser, who was head of the commandos, who landed on Sword Beach very flamboyantly. I mean, he's a wonderful character and um, I don't want to do him down because he was loved by his men and he was a brilliant leader. But famously, he landed with his bagpipe player, you know, um, who, who played the bagpipes as the commandos stormed up the beach. And he had, the commandos had one key role on, on D-Day, and that was to get to Pegasus Bridge, some miles inland, to relieve John Howard and his men who'd captured it during the night. They'd been dropped into, into the French countryside, they'd taken this bridge, and their orders were to hold it until the commandos arrived. Now, in Lord Lovett's account, he talks about how it's wonderful, and it, was a, it became a, a, a classic, iconic scene in The Longest Day, the Hollywood movie that was made about D-Day. Um, and interestingly, Lord Lovett acted as historical consultant for that movie. So he tells about how he gets to the bridge and the bagpipes are playing and he arrives and he arrives and he meets John Howard on the bridge and shakes his hand and says, you know, apologises. He said, sorry, old boy, we're two and a half minutes late. It, it's a classic, very sort of British line, you know. But the actual story didn't take place at all like that. What actually happened in this race to the bridge with all the commandos, highly competitive, they were all racing against each other. Lord Lovett was not the first to the bridge. It were the, the little band of men who were first were a band of uh, tough North London sort of uh, bruisers led by a chap called Stan Scotty Scott. They fought their way to the bridge in a sort of welter of fire and bloodshed that morning. And they were the first to arrive at the bridge. And... Um, as Stan said uh, later, he said, you know, there was none of the bagpipes and all that crap when we arrived there. They actually met um, an airborne paratrooper with his legs shattered, who just looked at them and said, where the effing hell have you been? And that story, for me, it rings true. Um, it rings much truer than the, the sort of flamboyance of Lord Lovett. And for the rest of his life, Stan Scotty Scott felt aggrieved that he, having fought his way to the bridge and got there first with his men and lost men on the way, had been simply written out of the history books. And that is just one example. There are many, many stories, and I tried to put as many as possible into my book, of these stories, of these men, these young men, who'd achieved extraordinary things on D-Day and been completely written out of the history books. I mean, one of the other stories, and it sort of shows what I'm trying to do, is that in the traditional histories of D-Day, the city of Bayeux was not captured until the next day, till the 7th of June. But, you know, I found um, the accounts of a small group of men, these who, at the end of the day, they couldn't stop. They were pumped up with adrenaline, and they fought their way into Bayeux. And in fact, this, this small group of, of men fought their way into the cathedral of Bayeux on the, on the night of the 6th of June, and they were inside the cathedral. And again, they were really sort of saddened by the fact that they'd achieved something extraordinary. They'd actually achieved what the Allied planners had intended them to do, which was to get into the centre of Bayeux by the, by the end of the 6th of June, and they'd done it. And this was never acknowledged. It was never recognised. And, and they felt hard done by um, for the rest of their lives. And again, it's another instance of a story where I wanted to tell the story of the men who were there and what, by dint of their, their bravado, their, their you know, heroism, really, that they achieved um, what they'd been intended to, to achieve and had never got any recognition for it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. And one of the most nail-biting, of many nail-biting sequences you have in the book is um, the Allied paratroopers coming in um, and landing behind enemy lines. Mm. Um, I wonder whether you could uh, tell us a bit about that side of events. Yes, so the the operation, long before the beach landings, which were due to take place at about dawn, they were staggered on the different beaches because of the tidal variations. But long before that, in the night, so soon after midnight, paratroopers in vast numbers were going to be dropped at the eastern end and the western end of the beachhead, basically to secure the extreme ends of the beachhead. And their stories, I mean, it's just terrifying to be dropped in at night from a plane with the Germans on the ground firing machine guns up at you. Very, very harrowing stories indeed from both the Americans at the the western end and the British at the eastern end. Um, The Americans had one sort of key target, one thing they had to achieve during the night um, before the beach landings, and that was to capture the town of St. Mary Glees. This was a crucial town. It stood astride the main highway that ran um, north to the port of Cherbourg, very, very important port for the Germans. It was also just a few miles inland from uh, Utah Beach. So it was really, if you controlled St. Mary Glees, you really controlled a key part of the French countryside, the Normandy countryside. Um, so I, I had was very fortunate to find in the um, archives in New Orleans in America um, accounts, very, very vivid accounts of some of the Americans who were dropped in that night um, around St. Mary's. Of course, absolutely everything that could go wrong did go wrong. They were landed in the wrong place. They got scattered. They couldn't find any of their buddies when they were on the ground. They didn't know where the hell they were. They lost most of their equipment. So you have these sort of small bands of men suddenly having to take their own initiative to work by themselves and and try and kind of capture a town in the darkness in the middle of Nor- Normandy where they didn't know where they were. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to believe, really, but this is what they had to do. There are mm. a couple of stories that I, I particularly wanted to ask about. One was about um, George Lane, the British-Hungarian um, agent who 
who essentially sweet-talked Rommel. Um, could you tell us a little bit about him? Yes, George Lane um, belonged to a very interesting and highly secretive band of commandos known as X Troop. X Troop was, um, was filled with um, foreign nationals, uh, whose countries had been overrun by the Nazis, and they'd come, they'd come to England, and they'd been formed into this highly elite troop. Um, they had Many of them had the advantage of speaking fluent German, of course, and George Lane was one of them. And in the weeks before D-Day, the Allied planners, obviously they'd been spying on the Germans, they'd been re flying reconnaissance flights over the beaches, and they had French spies working on their behalf, you know, on the coast. But they were really worried that the Germans had developed a new type of mine that could be strung out along the beaches and, and would detonate along an entire stretch of beach, which, if this was the case, it, it really posed a massive threat to the Allied landings. And to find out more about this mine, they really had to send a man ashore to either bring one back or photograph it. Well, this is where George Lane came in, um, a, a, almost a crazy individual, really. Um, he volunteered to paddle ashore in a dinghy, crawl up the beach, steal one of these mines, and then paddle back to England again. Of course, it all went wrong. Um, he, he managed to get ashore. Um, he was spotted. He had to get back to his dinghy. He went back out to sea. And as he was trying to get back to England, he was spotted by a German patrol craft. He was arrested, um, and he thought he was going to be shot or interrogated and shot. Instead, he was taken to this extraordinary chateau, which was the headquarters, the military headquarters of Field Marshal Rom, Rom, um, Rommel, who then interrogated him. And uh, well, it, the whole interrogation is in the book, but it is absolutely extraordinary that um, the bravado that George Lane showed and the fact that Rommel kind of admired George Lane's kind of chutzpah, you know, and they had this wonderful banter. And it's um, it's an extraordinary moment in the book, really. It is absolutely insane. Another incredible figure was a French cyclist spy um, who you said was kind of one of the figures that really got you into this, hooked you into this story. Could you tell us about him? Yes. So in uh, 1994, I was uh, working for the Mail on Sunday and we were doing a supplement on D-Day because it was the 50th anniversary. And um, all the top journalists got the top jobs, you know, um, going to find all the heroes of D-Day and everything. And I was a, a new boy uh, and I got sort of drew the short straw. They said, oh, go off to Normandy and see if you can find any interesting uh, French stories. Well, I was soon introduced to Guillaume Mercader. And uh, even in his, well, he was probably 80 or something there, 70 or 80 then, he was a fabulous character and with a fabulous story because he was a champion cyclist in the 1940s. And he was also a very had a silky charm. And he persuaded the head of the Gestapo in Normandy to allow him to continue training along the coastal road that um, went along the coast of, of Normandy. This was out of bounds to all French people for obvious reasons. It was a point of access for all the um, bunkers, the machine gun nests that formed the Atlantic Wall on the coast. But such was his charm. He persuaded the head of the Gestapo and he continued to train up and down this coast road. Little did the Gestapo know or the Germans know that he was noting every single bunker, machine gun post, every single point of access to the uh, Atlantic Wall and then was forwarding um, this information straight back to London. And so 
Within 24 hours of him cycling along that coastal road, it was in the hands of General Eisenhower in England. An extraordinary act of espionage. I think due to commemorations down the years and the way that history is written, you think D-Day, it was a victory. But um, what you kind of forget is that is the huge amount of bloodshed and loss of life on both sides, but on the Allied side, the Victoria side. Um, and I think that your book... Um, brings that home because there is uh, death and destruction at every turn, isn't there? There is. I mean, it was. Um, it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, and some things surprised me as well that I found that, for example, on Sword Beach, which was one of the British beaches, that um, I just had this vision of the commandos storming ashore in the first wave and, and, and storming up the beach. But actually, um, you know, a wise commander perhaps reserves his best troops for not for the first wave, but maybe the second or third wave. So then I found the story of the first men to go in, the poor, unfortunate men of the East Yorks who had had nothing like the training of the commandos. The commandos were the elite of the elite. The East Yorks, you know, they'd done some rudimentary training, some some physical exercises. And as they said, you know, whenever they could get a scarper off to the pub, they did, basically. They were completely ill-equipped for what, what was being going to be thrown at them, basically. And they landed in the first wave and the Germans were there with their machine guns and just slaughtered them. So when the commandos came into land, the first thing they saw was just on the edge, of, on, the, on the tide, just hundreds of bodies and bits of bodies just swirling around in, in the waves, you know. They weren't expecting that. Um, and it just really, uh, you know, there are very few accounts of the first wave because most of them were killed, but I did find some. And the the horror, the real horror, on, in fact, all, on all five beaches of the very first men ashore, just terrifying, really. That raises an interesting point, what you just said there about, um, obviously, the testimonies only survived from those who survived D-Day. How did that kind of um, affect the material that you were looking at? Well, you know, you are only as, as good as the uh, the interviews you can find. And that's why I spent so long searching out all the best interviews I could find um, to really try to piece together the story. But, you know, there's a very in interesting story um, is the one of Omaha Beach, which many people will remember from Saving Private Ryan. The, the opening sort of 20 minutes are very, very harrowing in, in Saving Private Ryan. And... I guess most people will, will take that away, that, that that's how it was. But it wasn't like that at all, because I found the account um, of the, um, for the, the, the man, the, the commander, who took the very first boat landing craft ashore into Omaha, and it wasn't like it's been shown in the film. So, first of all, to, to shatter some conceptions, you know, we think of Omaha as the um, one of the American beaches, but it, it wasn't as straightforward as that. So the, 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 the commander taking the landing craft ashore was actually from the Royal Navy. He was British. He was called um, Jimmy Green. And his account survives of what happened. And in fact, it wasn't a case of the landing craft coming to the shore and then they're all obliterated by mortars and machine gun fire. It's much more terrifying in a way. They were landed. There was no gunfire at all. It was absolutely silent. It was as if the entire beach was deserted. Jimmy Green landed Taylor Fellers and his men from the first landing craft onto the beach, no gunfire, and he radios back to the mothership anchored offshore, says they've all landed safely, you know, all good, and I'm returning back to the mothership, you know, to, to see you now. So Taylor Fellers and his men, they arrive on the beach, they walk up the beach, they take up positions on the beach, 
And it's only then, suddenly, dramatically, that the gunfire opens. And in fact, the Germans had been, had been coordinating absolutely everything. They were all there. They were all in wait. They were all in, 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 their, in their concrete bunkers, in their machine gun nests. You know, so, so um, through Jimmy Green's account, you know, I was really able to build a picture of what actually happened. And I think it's, it's even more terrifying in a way than what we've become used to from Hollywood. Um, so what do you think it ultimately was um, that turned the tide on D-Day and made it a success, in a sense, uh, rather than a failure? I think there are a number of factors, um, one of which, well, Rommel, who was in charge of the defences of the whole of northern France, he had said right from the beginning that if we don't defeat the Allies on the day itself, the day of the invasion, then we've lost the war. He was quite categorical about that. And he knew that to defeat the Allies, you had to get them when they were still on the beaches. These men were inexperienced and they were very, very seasick when they landed. And so um, he wanted to attack them when they were on the beach. To do that, he needed his elite divisions, the SS Panzer divisions, who were stationed inland. Now, unfortunately for Rommel, they could only be, re be released into the battle by Hitler himself. And Hitler was fast asleep, way away, away in, in Bavaria. He'd taken a sleeping tablet and no one dared to wake him. So it was not until after midday that finally they got permission to use the panzer divisions. And um, really, I think that delay was absolutely crucial in the Allies being able to get ashore. That was one thing. The other thing was that um, I'm not going to quote these statistics exactly right, but it's something like the Luftwaffe flew something like 150 sorties on D-Day itself. The Allies flew something like 12,500. So you just think the, um, sim the Luftwaffe simply wasn't there. And there were numerous Germans, professional Germans in the, in the German army, who were just bewailing the fact that the, the, the Luftwaffe were absent on D-Day. They could have made all the difference. Imagine what they could have done, the carnage they could have wreaked on the beaches, you know, if they'd been flying over, flying over and bombarding the beaches as the troops landed. They simply weren't there. And it meant that the Allies had the skies to themselves that day. Um, and really, uh, I think that was another real uh, reason why the Germans didn't really make any headway on D-Day itself. So if someone were to go away and read your book, what would you want them to take away from it? I think just to, to see um, the war and D-Day uh, specifically through a completely different outlook, if you like, to see it through those men um, who achieved great things. Because um, D-Day was planned so precisely down to every last second, quite literally, had been planned. Um, and of course, as the day unfolded, everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And what this meant was, um, you know, in spite of the plans, um, the, the success or failure of the day would be in the hands of the young lads on the beach, basically. And so it was, some were terrified, some cowered in the sand, and a few of them just went beyond themselves. And they, they what you have accounts of in the book is of a few, a small group of men would, would attack a specific German bunker and knock it out. And if you knocked out one bunker on the beach, basically you freed up 300, 400 metres of beach for more men to land. So it was uh, the 
the heroism of individuals or small groups counted for everything in the opening hours of the invasion. Because if you, as I say, if you knocked out one bunker, you could enable hundreds more men to pour ashore. So I wanted to tell the story of these men that um, has not been told. They were never rewarded. Many of them never got the medals they deserved. Um, they were simply forgotten again about in the weeks uh, and months that followed. Um, but without them, D-Day might have been a disaster. That was Giles Milton. D-Day, The Soldier's Story, is out now, published by John Murray. And we've now come to the end of today's episode, but we will be back in a few days with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.